You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. So there are two more movies slated to round out Tom Cruise's tenure. If Mission 8 releases as scheduled in 2024, it will be 28 years from the first movie to the last movie. Now think of this, Andrew. In Bond terms, that would be like Sean Connery sticking with the franchise through License to Kill. Oh, damn. That's nuts. To compare it to Roger Moore, Roger Moore would have played it from Live and Let Die through The World is Not Enough. Tom Cruise has been at it. It's insane. He'll be 62 years old when the last movie releases. Still looks good. I'm sure they use some digital trickery in some of his scenes, but you know what? It doesn't matter because he's still putting himself through the ringer physically. Yeah, he looks nothing like Roger Moore did by the end of his Bond tenure. Let us move on to Mission Impossible 3 from 2006, directed by... J.J. Abrams. (sighs) This is one that I saw in theaters. I was 18, and I have to tell you, I was very disappointed with it at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Because of all the domestic crap, it's like, oh my god, the alias guy is now making Ethan a husband. Okay, we get it. This is what you're into. I remember the criticisms at the time that I definitely agreed with. It felt like one long TV episode. The lighting sucks. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just give a little summary of the plot. So at this point, Ethan is a trainer at the IMF. He's no longer out in the field. He's engaged. And the bad guy takes his woman and forces him to get a MacGuffin for him. Which is another part of J.J. Abrams' movies that I hate. The guy does not care about plot, and this is one of his most egregious examples, where he pretty much tells the audience, hey look, we're just going to call it a rabbit's foot. I'm not going to tell you what it is or what it does. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, that did undercut a lot of the tension. Because you don't know what the stakes are. You just know, like, okay, it's an arms dealer. Okay, he wants to sell it. But what does it do? And then there's a moment... And this is the first one with Simon Pegg in it. He's a computer tech. And they ask his character, Benji, Benji, what is the rabbit's foot? And he goes, I don't really know, but I had a professor that talked about some anti-god device that could cause mass destruction. And the camera is zooming in on his face, and we hear that ominous music. And then he goes, but hey, you know, that could just be bullshit. I don't know. Oh, JJ, I hate you. Uh, (laughs) I will give him credit though even though I hate flash forwards and a lot of this does kind of feel like lost on some level the opener with Philip Seymour Hoffman holding a gun to Ethan's wife's head and threatening him and counting down to you better tell me what I want to know or I'm going to shoot her it was a fun moment to start with Very tense opening, I have to admit. Unfortunately, the movie opened way stronger than it could deliver. 
with how strong that scene is, it would have been just as strong appropriately placed later in the movie. I will agree, but I do think it was still the flash forward was an interesting choice. I kind of like those kinds of things just because then you can see how it builds up to that moment. And you're never really sure what point of the movie that's in. These movies, they all have really good opening sequences to get you hooked pretty quickly. As much as I rail against this movie, kind of like with Mission 2, I will always commend it for trying something different. As much as I like Bond, there are some movies that just feel very cookie cutter. Whereas this, okay, let's start the movie with a flash forward. Do I ever want to see that again? No. But hey, at least I can see what it looks like one time. (laughs) (laughs) I never want to see it again. That's funny. (laughs) What do you think, besides that opener, feels unique about this versus the other movies? Other than him being domestic... It was nice to see more of the internal politicking of the IMF with Musgraves and Lawrence Fishburne. Brassel. Yeah, Brassel. I can understand for you, like, Ethan being domestic, especially when you're a fan of the series. That's bad, but I kind of don't mind heroes becoming trainers. I think if you want to settle down, you got to get out of the field. And if he's happy, he's happy. I think it did a lot of things well. It just didn't add up to a good hole. In sequence, being there opening weekend, it was such a letdown. It wasn't what I was hoping for. But I've come to appreciate this movie more, and there were years between the first time I saw it and the second time I saw it. In retrospect, I praise it more just because it does give us the marriage subplot that does come back and... Fallout would not be as good if not for the setup of the Julia character in the third movie. Yes. And that's another way that it's different from Bond. That wonderful bit of continuity, which apparently in the commentary for Fallout, Cruz says that one of the first things he talked to Christopher McQuarrie about what was going to happen in Fallout, he said, we got to bring back Julia. People are still asking me about her. Whatever happened to her, let's tell that story. And that was a good choice. Yeah, I was really glad that she had a much bigger role in Fallout. If you know she's in Fallout, then yeah, obviously in Ghost Protocol, yeah, you just you find out that she's okay, but that's about it. It's a fun romp, but it's clearly one of the lower tier Mission Impossibles. This feels like maybe the most pandering of the mission movies feeling like the larger genre at the time something that stuck out like a sore thumb in this one is all the witty banter right in the middle of an operation luther is asking hunt about his nuptials really you're gonna ask about it right now (laughs) yeah but i think that's just the guys who wrote the script that's kind of their style the um that Alex Kurtzman and Orchie and J.J. Abrams, because they've worked on like a lot of stuff together. And You mean the Horsemen of the Apocalypse? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but they kind of have that style. You would not get that type of dialogue, that inappropriately placed dialogue in the first movie. Oh, no, you wouldn't. The first movie took itself far too seriously. To its benefit, I will say, that's not a jab at it. 
2006. I mean, it's just, this is when things started becoming not 100% witty quips. It started going this direction. Marvel didn't begin the witty quip movement, but they definitely didn't help it, and they made it a lot worse. Or I'll say the MCU didn't start it, but I think the Marvel movies in general kind of did. And when that kicked off, when we talk about the other movies in the series, it shows that Tom Cruise was going in the opposite direction of how all the other action movies were going with the MCU stuff, Fast and Furious, which on some level I feel like is a bit of a lowest common denominator. But he said, no, I'm going to hold on to my super convoluted plots. I'm glad he did. Yeah, man. I mean, something different. What would you say is the closest Bond equivalent? That's a tough one. How about you go first on this one? Because I'm actually having a hard time coming up with something. On the face of it, it feels obvious to me, but I do dig a little deeper into my choice. I would go with uh, Majesty's Secret Service. That's what I wanted to say. It's his wife. Only for that reason. But on a deeper level, it's him actually interacting more with a female love interest that is more than just, oh, I'm going to bang you, and then you're going to die. Like, he really thinks about the relationship with her, and we see that domestic side of him come out as much as possible in a Bond movie. So that's why I kind of liken it to this third movie. I think I'd agree with you on that one. Because the relationship is a pretty big part of it. It's a good action flick. If you're just looking for something along the lines of Mission Impossible 2 where you can just kind of like be in and out of it and it doesn't really matter too much. As its own thing, it's fine. But then when you discover the other entries in the series, you go, oh my god, this one stinks. But you cannot skip it. I feel like you can skip two. You can't skip three if you're going to watch four and six. Let us rate this movie. What would you give the story? I'd give it a three. I would give it a two, mostly because of that stupid rabbit's foot thing. Like, you kind of have to reckon with yourself as an audience member. Like, does it matter? Do you need to know what the world-ending object does, or do you just need to know if it's a world-ending object? They try to be clever, and I'm sure Abrams in some interviews said, you know, we're deconstructing the formula. And we're showing you that it's really not important what it is. It just drives the action forward. It makes me... It's the start of my hate relationship with J.J. Abrams. This was the beginning of it, really. <laughs> I thought less of him after a while with Lost. I don't know how much involvement he had past the first season, but his name was attached to it. And as that show went on, I disliked him more and more. As far as his movies, this is where it started, and it just never stopped. Going back to our ratings, let's talk about the action. Action, I'd give it a three. Yeah, nothing about it was very memorable, whereas two had too much style. Three just feels like it's a day at the office for JJ. Yeah, it's pretty cookie cutter, this one. How about the cruise stunts? This one had some cool ones. I'd still give it a three, though. The Shanghai heist was pretty cool. The fulcrum, where he swung over. And I like the lead-up to that, where he's drawing on a window and doing some math. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was cool. 
How about his team? Team was better this time around. I'd give them a three. I gave him a two, mostly because besides Luther, there's no backstory for the other two characters. They're just tools for the plot. Didn't Maggie Q have a little bit of a backstory? It was pointless, but didn't she have some backstory? She did. She had a few lines. When Hunt is trying to get the rabbit's foot in Shanghai, she's out in the car with, I think, Jonathan Reese Myers. And she says she prayed as a little girl. And then awkwardly, he says, teach me a prayer. And then immediately Hunt interrupts and is out with the rabbit's foot. It's like, well, why even have him ask? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just so unnecessary. It did nothing. The team on this one was a little more active than in Mission Possible 2. I felt like when they stole Philip Seymour Hoffman's identity at the Vatican, he really did need his entire team to help him out with that one. Whereas like with MI2, I don't remember really the Australian guy doing anything. He flew the chopper. Okay, yeah, he flew a chopper. Yeah. (laughs) Which I guess since uh, Hunt can fly a chopper in the sixth movie, they really didn't need him in the second one. Yeah. (laughs) What would you give the villain? Three only because... He was well-acted. Hoffman was just underutilized. He definitely carried his scenes. He really went into being that kind of smug, nasty guy. He did a great job. In that scene where he's holding the gun to Julia's head and threatening Ethan, I think that's a really good acting moment for Tom Cruise, because you really see it all play on his face. He's feeling helpless. At first, he tries to play a little game with the bad guy, but that quickly dries up, and then he's just left with nothing. He's got nothing in his bag of tricks. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I didn't mind the flash forward also, because it was one of the more tense scenes in the movie, and I got to see it twice. And as far as moments where, never mind the sneaky stuff that's happening in that scene, but it's one of the few moments where Ethan flat out fails. And hard, too. Any final thoughts about this one? It's not great, but unfortunately, if you're going to watch all of these movies, it's not skippable. You have to go through it. I wouldn't want to ditch any of them. I think they're at least a good single watch. A lot of these won't end up on the best movies ever list, but as my emotions have cooled off over the decades... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will actually rewatch MI3. <laughs> Let's move on to the fourth movie, Ghost Protocol, where they start using the subtitles. They get back to the classic opening montage, so you know things are going back on the rails. This one, you've got Hunt trying to stop a crazy nuclear analyst from launching a missile at San Francisco that's going to start a nuclear war. Kind of fun that it took them this long to do a nuclear bomb scenario. Directed by Brad Bird of Incredibles fame. What were your thoughts on finishing this one? What struck you first? I didn't see Ghost Protocol before, but I remember seeing Rogue Nation, and I definitely could see that this one set the tone for the movies to come because there's definite similarities between this and Rogue Nation 
in like style, dialogue, action, and the level of the stunts. Was it nice to see the intro of Jeremy Renner? It was. This was a good one. This was a fun, satisfying movie. Finishing it this go-around, the first thing I thought was, this is the first real team movie in the series. Everybody's got a backstory. You like everybody. They work as a well-oiled machine. First time in the series where this is happening. Oh, yeah. You are right, aren't you? Yeah. The poor team in the first movie. But then, yeah, after that, it really is just kind of the Ethan show. It's always the Ethan show, but at least with this one, I feel like the team members are a lot more useful. I'm somebody who loves continuity and seeing Simon Pegg back and that he's got a promotion from working in the office to out in the field. That's something about his character never quite being the perfect agent like Ethan and how they play with that in subsequent movies. It's just, oh, what a great piece of character development. What do you think is unique about this in the overall franchise? Anything else? The scale of it. This is the first one where I feel like the scale was really... Because like the first one was a smaller scale. The second one, they got subsequently bigger. Kind of like a percentage bigger. This one really upped it. Not exponentially, but by multiples. It's like they said, hey look, how do we bring this back? Well, you know what? Why don't we just go all out? It almost plays out like a movie, I think, where they weren't sure if this would revitalize the franchise or not, so they just gave it their all, and it panned out. It's a big, big action flick. Well, and it continued Cruz using a different director for each installment, which I was so happy for. At the time, people were wondering if they were just beating a dead horse because the third movie was so lackluster in box office. At the time, all I thought was, thank God the third movie won't be the last one. (laughs) (laughs) You just wanted something else to close it out? Yeah, they got a chance to make up for it. It didn't turn into a real franchise, I think, until the fourth movie. Before that, oh, maybe it's just a trilogy, you know, whatever. But by the fourth movie and the legs that it gave back to the franchise, I think that's when people were like, oh, there's more to this than what we thought. Cruz is going to be with this a while longer. What were some of your favorite scenes or performances? I enjoyed the breakout scene in the very beginning. I enjoyed the exchange sequence when they're doing the diamond exchange for the nuclear codes. That whole Dubai sequence was really, really cool. There's a Bond connection for you. Leia Seydoux is in both of the franchises. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that tripped me out when I saw her, because I'm like, wait a minute, is that Leia Seydoux? And surely enough, it was. You can't give me enough of her. I can get enough, but... (laughs) (laughs) She's got a very alluring face. She does, but I didn't like her as a Bond girl too much. I thought she was boring. Yeah, but was it her fault, or was it the writing? It's the writing. I really enjoyed the Kremlin scene. I think this might be the most gadget-heavy out of the movies. But what I love, as opposed to like a Q scene in a Bond movie, the gadgets here still feel pretty grounded. And the fact that they just use a projection screen to cover a hallway, it seems like something that probably could exist. 
What I really appreciated about that sequence was as they're moving the screen, and as you can see the guard through the screen moving around, you can see the camera moving with him, you can see how it's working, and it makes perfect sense. It's not just like, oh, okay, it's just tracking the guy with the camera and then blasting the other side, and I just thought it was a really cool gadget. Ghost Protocol was a lot of fun. It was good. And the planning, the heist, and all these movies being a staple of the series, something to point out, especially in the fourth movie, sure, they come up with an elaborate plan, but things inevitably go wrong, and it's fun to watch them deal with it, such as Hunt scaling that super tall building using those magnetic gloves that stop working. Ah, what a great moment. I do like it when the plans start going south, because it just adds a lot more tension to the scene. Because it's like, all right, well, it's already going to be exciting to see him scale the building, but oh, now the glove's not working. It's a chance for Hunt to seem more than just action man, because you see the frustration on his face in some of those moments when things are going wrong for him. Mm -hmm. At the tail end of that scene, when he's trying to get back into the room that they all share... He's having trouble getting back in. There's a big gap. And Benji says, you're too far away. I love the moment when Hunt says, no shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a fun moment. And then he almost just knocked himself out trying to get back in that room. What do you think's the closest Bond equivalent? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Hmm, that is a really tough one. I almost want to say the Living Daylights again. Ooh, why? The twists and turns. This one had plot twists that, like, genuinely surprised me. Such as? The Kremlin blowing up. That was pretty unexpected. And then the secretary being shot. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. It's like, holy crap. Like, it just... <laughs> that, yeah, that surprised me. I feel like the MI movies really do lean more toward the Dalton Bonds, where there's more of a sense of grounding, but there is that sense of double-cross and not really knowing who to trust. Hmm. Once again, anytime a reference can be made to The Living Daylights, I'm all for it. <laughs> I would say the closest one, I think, is Casino Royale, because they both reinvigorated their franchises. They both followed lackluster movies, and they both made audiences go, we need to pay attention to this again. It's getting good. And that I can completely agree with as well. What would you rate the story? This has a pretty solid four of a story. How about the action? Four. Crew stunts? Ooh, that building scene. That was pretty wild. I'd give that a four, though. How about the team? Five. And the villain? I didn't think much of the villain. The villain a two. I feel you. I think out of all the movies, the villain in four is the most plot requirement. He just helps the story move along. You have little mini-villains like Leia Sado and... This, the big baddie, he just kind of, the final fight between he and Ethan, it was good, and then it's just like, uh, okay, he threw himself off the building. All right, whatever, you know, and... It's in character, because he's a fanatic. 
it is in character, but I just didn't feel like it was very... It was very anticlimactic. Did you want some John Woo flips out of these 50-year-old men? No. (laughs) It felt unsatisfying to me. It felt like a weaker aspect of the overall story. Yeah. The movie's great, but you're not going to get a solid 9 out of 10 villain. You're going to get a guy who's just kind of there. Yeah, he's no Blofeld. Exactly. Well, I gave all the other aspects of 4... Not because this is the fourth movie, but I did notice that. And then, yeah, the villain, I just, I gave a one. He's just there. You know, nice to see you. Yeah, exactly. The one thing keeping it from a zero would be if J.J. Uh, Abrams came back to direct it, and you just had a nondescript guy in a hood who you'd never find out his backstory, you don't even know his name. And J.J. points at him and says, He's the bad guy with the briefcase. Who is he? We don't care, just get him. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just had to burn him one last time. Oh, I think I could burn him once or twice more before this is over. <laughs> we shall see. Hey, guys. Hopefully you're all enjoying this Mission Impossible talk. Because there are currently six movies in the franchise... I'm cutting up my discussion with Andrew into three parts. So keep an eye out for those episodes, and make sure you check back in with us. Thanks for listening. 